Hello everyone, good morning, hello, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world and uh, what time of day you're listening to us. Of course, you can catch this show on Today Radio, watch it on RTL Play. Please do subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify, download it, leave a review, etc. It just makes it more easy to find for other people living in Luxembourg and abroad. And with that, uh, a very warm welcome to my guests in the studio. I have Ambassador Vladimir Bertel from uh, the Czech Republic. I also have, of course, my colleague Sasha Kyo. And I have two artistic people in the room. I've got Catherine Elson, who's an actress, performer, and I've got director Sandy Artuzo as well. So we're going to talk about all sorts of different things. But of course, as often is the case, as usual, we will start with a reflection of the week's news. So, Sasha, I know that uh, neither of us were up at midnight when a, a specific interview was aired. Of course, as usual, we're recording this on the Friday morning. Um, but during the course of the night, there was a specific interview. Yes, so this interview was by the ex-Fox News uh, host, uh, Tucker Carlson, um, and he managed to get an interview with uh, Russian President President Vladimir Putin. And uh, it aired at midnight last night on his website. Um, so, yes, I don't think many of us have watched it at this point. And only, so, you know, what what only things I can say is what I've read. Yeah, I me too. Me too. Seen, yes. um, yeah. I've just seen photos and, uh, and what I've read from the interview. But what made me, I thought was quite interesting, it was that it was a two hour interview. And the first half an hour apparently was a history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> So even Tucker Carlson can't um, manage to get Mr. Putin to maybe uh, not ramble on about the history of Russia, let's put it that way, and uh, took a while to get move on to the 21st century. Yeah, I've heard it was not... Um a probing interview, but I'm sure there was a lot of background work done in order to get this interview in the first place. Well, yes, I mean this. This is, of course, that you know uh, Tucker Carlson is well known for for being very pro Mr. Putin and has you know in the past made very anti-Ukraine comments. Very. Uh, Yes, I mean, he's used descriptions of uh, President, the Ukrainian President Zelensky, which are very unflattering. So obviously, you know, the, the, um, to be fair to him, it is, it is an absolute coup because it is the first interview by a Western journalist. But on the other hand, you know, it's not aired on mainstream American television or anywhere else on uh, mainstream media. Mm, uh, it's spoken about a lot on mainstream media. Spoken about media. it, absolutely. And I, as you say, I don't think anything new came out of it. You know, uh, Putin said that uh, there is absolutely no way that um, Ukraine can defeat Russia. You know, it was all quite expected. Um, he also spoke about the possibility that the Wall Street journalist, that there could be a deal with uh, about Evan Gashkovich, who is currently imprisoned um, in Russia. So that that was the only really, I think, newsworthy part. Um, and he lamed he blames uh, the Western alliance for, for you know, arming Ukraine. And mm. it, um, in particular, actually, interestingly, uh, Boris Johnson um, mm. for um, misleading the West in, in uh, arm, you know, in leading the sort of armament of Ukraine. Um, mm. so but that, it gave an insight into his psyche. Well, I wonder, do you think so? What do you think, Mr. Ambassador? Did it give an insight into Putin's psyche? From the bits I've heard, not having watched yeah. the interview. Yeah, I, I haven't watched that either. I wouldn't mm. do that to me. And, uh, <laughs> but what I heard, it was uh, even for, for the, the attack, it was quite, uh, quite boring. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, yeah. And I guess uh, we had uh, quite a lot of uh, songs to Putin's uh, psyche uh, recently. So, yeah. yeah. Another yeah. one. Yes. Well, well he let's does talk like to talk very long. I mean, his his in, his so-called press conferences um, hours uh, go, go on for <laughs> hours and hours and hours, and usually with a history lesson as well. So uh, that's quite funny. I heard somewhere that he spent a lot of COVID reading books, going back into the. the annals of Russian history. I even, uh, before this um, this show, I, I, I looked again at a map of the world and Russia is enormous. Its geographical 
footprint on on uh, our current earth is is enormous. Anyway, let's move on from Putin. Let's go to uh, close to home, and of course, the upcoming week. It's a holiday week here in Luxembourg. Next week, it's uh, Carnival, Carnival holidays, and Germany, our neighbour, is having some parties. Yes, so Carnival is is a it's a, it's quite a big deal in Luxembourg, and obviously in this part of Germany that we border, so in the sort of Catholic part of Germany and in Bavaria. Um, so it k- kind of kicked off yesterday in Germany with this lovely Weiberfastnacht, which is the car- women's carnival, where in in back in the days when men still wore ties, you were allowed to cut their ties. Um, <laughs> well, what's the history of this women's carnival, which I hadn't come across before living here? I don't know. Sorry, I, know, I didn't mean to I, put yes, you on the spot. I, I don't know what the history is. I know there's different carnival days for, the, you know, the big cavalcades are in Germany on Monday. Mm. Here in Luxembourg, the Dikish one is on Sunday. Mm. Um, and, you know, that that's when everybody dresses up and the floats go past and the different carnival societies, you know, throw out sweets and have a little competition. Uh, you have the special donuts and big parties on on Tuesday um, you know it's it's an I find it very interesting particularly in Germany where they really go for it mm. and um, and you know during carnival time you're allowed to say anything do anything be anyone you want to be and then you have to go back to just being normal and law-abiding. Well you lived in Germany in your younger years so you've experienced this as a young person as well it must have been quite fun. It was as a child. It was really fun because I grew up in Munich, which is very, it's very big carnival uh, city as well. Um, but I grew up, you know, with English parents who didn't really understand carnival, so they would kind of go in and say, "Why has my bank manager got a red nose on him?" <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, but as we know, it's it's the craziness before Ash Wednesday Mm. when we all then all go into Lent, uh, traditionally. The opposite of carnival. Do the the opposite. Mm. Do you do do pancakes on Shrove Tuesday? When when I remember, yes. Yes, I do. Yes. Although it might be waffles this year since I've bought myself this waffle maker and I'm quite Ah. obsessed with uh, various waffle recipes. (laughs) (laughs) Waffle Tuesday in my house, maybe. But no, um, I do try to mark it, actually. I mean, a lot of people also travel. It's, it's in fact, one of the worst weeks to travel this weekend, this coming weekend. A holiday week here, isn't it? Especially for skiers. So um, if you are going skiing, we wish you luck. We wish you uh, safety on the slopes and we wish you safe driving with not too many uh, traffic jams. I was stuck in a 15 hour traffic jam once on the way back, so I'm not repeating that. I'm going to stay (laughs) firmly in Luxembourg and enjoy everything that Luxembourg has to offer and maybe nearby Germany and Carnival. Um, Moving to the UK, of course, a huge topic this week has been King Charles' cancer diagnosis. Yes, and he's been, uh, you know, what is very unusual for the royal family is he's been incredibly open about it. So he was very open that he was having uh, surgery for an enlarged prostate. Yeah. Uh, we don't know whether this cancer diagnosis has anything to do with that, but while he was being operated, they obviously, uh, the doctors found that uh, he did have cancer. And mm. it's uh, we not, as I say, it's not known what kind of cancer mm. it is. It's also not known how serious it is. They said it was early stages. Um What's very interesting, two points really, is that it's the first time that a, a, a king or queen has been really open about uh, medical conditions. You know, it used to be kind of shrouded in secrecy because, as you know, uh, Kate has also undergone uh, surgery, abdominal. abdominal surgery, and that's also been very open. And uh, the second, so charities are very happy that he's talking about cancer and about prostate cancer. Uh, issues because it apparently it's caused in in the UK a massive amount of men going for checkups mm-hmm. say for an enlarged prostate so you know that is soft power isn't it that's a real he still has a very in, big influence and i think the other really interesting thing is that it's been so widely reported outside of the UK mm-hmm. and that that surprised me because i had assumed that uh, once the Queen died, there would be less interest in the British royal family. But uh, this story has been huge here in Germany, in France as well. You know, so 
He's really blossomed in the role, even in his 70s, when he's taken yeah. up the role of being king. Um, and I think he has a swell of support behind him. And of course, this is so sad, so early on to his uh, reign, in fact. And as you said, the charities, there's been an awful lot of press around how happy the charities are, that somebody of his standing can be open about this and the support. I mean, moving from this story, I want to move on to the climate change story, because that's another place where his Soft power, as you say, has enormous influence. He opened up uh, COP28. Yes, of course he did. And and that was a very well-received opening speech, which mm. they said no one else really could could have done. That because he's lived his life by this. Yes. He has entire. He's been one of the most outspoken people on, on the environment and climate since his young years. So he is speaking what he truly believes and everybody knows that, anybody yes. who's followed his life. But yes, the, the the climate has again been in the news this week. Yes, so it's um it's it's a report actually done by the EU Copernicus um group mm. not group, organization. And uh and that is that we're getting we're above one point five degrees um of, of an increase in our climate since pre-industrial levels. And of course, this 1.5 degrees is very important because that was the agreed Paris uh, agreement in 2015 mm. that we should not go above it. And it looks like we are going just above it. And, um, you know, so it's 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 not sort of the, the worst kind of doom and gloom uh, report out there, but it does show that this, this accord that was reached, you know, we, we have reached it. You know, last year was the hottest year on record, as we know. January was the hottest. This January I think just gone was the hottest. Every January. single day was was record beating. Yes, absolutely. So you know, the warning signs are, are flashing red. Absolutely, mm. and we we know the you know the the. They also specifically talk, uh, talked about the wildfires in Canada, the floods in Libya. You know, th these are all consequences of climate change, as we know. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, from that, let's move to um, the uh, coming back to Luxembourg, really. I want to start with um, the Luxembourg court um, because Luxembourg is facing EU legal action. Yes, so this this is quite surprising, really, um, and that is about this very contentious issue in Luxembourg, which is their treatment of uh, arresting and imprisonment of minors. So, um, you know, Luxembourg, we've spoken about it before, is that several people under the age of eighteen have been incarcerated in a Schwarzig prison and not in a youth detention uh, because they have run out of space in the youth detention centre. So we know that Luxembourg government is planning to build a new youth detention centre. But it appears that the the Luxembourg has also breached this um, directive from the EU Commission on how they treat minors once they're arrested. So it's not just where they're held, but also um, quick reporting to parents or guardians that the, a minor has, has been arrested. And um, the you know the 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 legal representation i think everything's just happening very slowly mm. and they have luxembourg has been warned twice um if they're found guilty at the court they will have to pay massive fines so i i don't know what the history is of luxembourg kind of um adhering to eu directives but mm. i would think this was quite unusual well the fines aren't really the the story i mean that's one part of it but it's how you're treating young people who for whatever reason in their lives have ended up in this situation and the care that they probably need and they are not receiving. Yes, exactly. It's it's all about the, the, the way they're treated, the communication with uh, health authorities or guardians. It's it's that, I think, that's mm. missing. Mm. So it's, it seems they need to, ha you know, there's been criticism from human rights groups in the past and so I think they, the government will have to take it quite seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, another story about children and the internet. Be Secure. It's an organisation that I know about. I've had them on the show before. I thought you had. Yes. 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 So this is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful organisation. So tell us more about Be, B-E-E, -E, Secure. Yes. So it's a government initiative to help people and in particular children and young people with digital technology and how to be safe with digital technology. And they have issued a big report um, which, ha um, which actually coincided with uh, safer internet day this week and it's 
I don't know, maybe, maybe it's being a mother, but I'm always shocked by the by the numbers. So 35% of children who are under four already have access to the internet. So that seems to me very, very young. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure it's, it, they don't say that it, that they're alone, that, but you know, they're playing games, but they have access to internet, which I, mm. I find quite surprising. Um, and by the time that they're 10, 80% of children have mm. their own mobile device and full access to the internet. So again, I, I, I'd say it was quite young, but maybe I'm a very conservative parent. Well, I uh, I was listening just to a radio station during the week and they were talking about all of the, the tech billionaires over in uh, San Francisco. Oh, Silicon they Valley. don't let their children. This is they? correct. There's a school that most of their children go to. I think it's in Menlo Park or something like this. Uh, and um, yeah, the, the, whatever school this is, they are not allowed technical devices under the age of 12. So the irony is enormous there. Uh, plus the fact that, of course, the idea of uh, a phone like the one I'm holding right now is that it is completely user friendly to anybody without needing to read an instruction manual, which I think is brilliant. But it also means that a young child. Uh, Ambassador, you have young children. What's your view on technology and young children? Well, I do. And um, well, I have a, two adults and that, uh, that's that's lost already. They're adult. They use it, of course, on a daily basis. But uh, I've, I've got uh, younger kids as well. And, and so far we are resisting. The only um, uh, things we admitted to a son who is 11 years old is uh, a smart uh, watch, but really, really simple one. shows just he can call us if he's in, in distress, but he doesn't have any smartphone and and uh, but he's claiming his time on my iPad more and more. Yeah. Well, you've resisted well because, in fact, I found that the change for children is that switch to secondary school, and when they switch to secondary school, particularly, but of course, the second child tends to get it a bit younger. Yeah. There's peer pressure. There is peer pressure, and that's the harder thing. That's 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 worse than parental pressure, actually. So, um, and then of course at schools during COVID time. Everything turned very quickly to teams, like yes, the had to be. entire so, education absolutely. system. And so, you know, my daughter, my second daughter's uh, continual perpetual line is, I have to have my computer because of dot, dot, dot. My work is on my phone. My work is on my And so to a point that is correct. But um, it also means she has access to everything else too. Well, the, the, the frightening part, I also thought the numbers, was that 12 to 19-year-olds on average, and this is a Luxembourg uh, government initiative, are spending 224 minutes. Well, that's nearly four hours online. Yeah, I read that too. Um that's a really that is a you know I don't know how you would fit I mean find that time find in the day outside of school or or you know after school activities mm. that seems a pity because I was that's also, a long time I was also talking to somebody else um, an older person this week about he was reflecting on his university days and um I think we communicated, well, obviously we communicated in a completely different way. We didn't have instant access to our friends all the time. We literally had to meet them or in my, we would write messages outside each other's doors and leave notes, etc. So it's, I mean, obviously the world has changed. I'm sounding very old now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a sort of constant communication. But it, as yes. I, find, I think communication is actually better than, if you're talking to your friends, I sort of find that better than yeah. um, if you're just... Scrolling. Scrolling, taking in, you know. Yeah. Obviously, if they're scrolling uh, various uh, Today Radio or RDL sites. Well, that's, that's fine. fine. That's fine. <laughs> they that's have to very educational. Up. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Sasha, thank you as always. Pleasure. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, turning to Ambassador Vladimir Bertel, it's wonderful to finally have you on the show. I know uh, we've met at various occasions through the four years that you've been resident in Luxembourg. And it wasn't an easy start because, of course, when you came here, COVID happened. And so it was a very difficult time to start your your time here as an ambassador. Yeah, but <clears throat> not just for me. It was it was everywhere, and uh, it was a question whether how to behave when we cannot do the business as usual, and uh, when we have uh, some funds, we have some plans also for diplomatic activities, and we cannot do that. So, uh, my first decision was not to close the embassy because also for the consular reasons, it was extremely important to allow people to come. Uh, but at the same time, I 
was thinking that it's also a, a chance maybe to start a not the business as usual, but uh, to find out how we can, like a Czech industry, how can help. And uh, since uh, we are for a long time quite um, uh, developed with, in nanofibers productions. And so I was uh, quickly um, identifying that looks innovation, looks innovation, looks innovation. And, and Sasha Bailey had uh, obviously perfectly overview of the of the companies in Luxembourg. So I offered we can bring some samples of uh, nano textiles, nanofiber produced masks and, and etc. And she identified companies and, and everywhere was locked and I could use my motorbike and going from the companies from the from the from the factories to show them how they can actually use that. Yes, because I had no idea that the Czech Czech Republic was well known for a nanotextile production industry. What is nanotextile? Well um the the thing is that uh, especially in my hometown in in Liberec, in in north of Czechia there's a technical university where they started really early to produce machines for producing the nanofiber which is um, the, uh, the 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 product which is much much thinner than a, than a, than a hair the, the human hair so and it's can serve for so many reasons, so many purposes, and especially during in, in, in medical purposes during the COVID could make it uh, uh, the the the, uh, the masks breathable, but at the same time much uh, uh, dense uh, to um, to be against the, the viruses and bacteria. So that was something which was for the first time used in in such a scale. So, in fact, uh, your hometown became very intrinsic to your time here in Luxembourg and you brought that collaboration, that business together from the Czech Republic to Luxembourg. Yes, um, but it's not just a hometown. But actually, the, the nanotechnology is in in many places in in Czechia and now and and uh, and we can say that um, the cooperation with the uh, with the the scientists and industry, but those those uh, fauna are different DNA, but they, especially during the COVID time, found the the common ground to understand the the challenges and to make things uh, faster. And not just in nanotechnology, there was also there was a, a group of scientists uh, in Czech uh, Technical University in Prague and they, they started to produce uh, um, a lung uh, ventilator, very easy one, so as it could be used in field hospitals some, sometimes just to overcome the most difficult phase for the, for the patients. And, um, and what was overwhelming, it was like on ground found and, and the, the, the first target was like around 300,000 euros, but the, the response of people was that uh, they finished in 550,000 euros and they can produce immediately 500 of such a uh, core event uh, called, uh, called uh, lung ventilators to offer them to military and, and also just to help the first peak of the of, uh, coming uh, of, uh, of the pandemic. So there was a real groundswell of support there for that. Right. Um, now, you mentioned the motorbike. I know you're also a pilot and you celebrated with NATO ambassadors, co-organised with AmCham, a trip to Spangdalem. That's true. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, Paul Schonenberg from AmCham, he was the mastermind who convinced actually the the uh, wing commander in Spangdalem for the idea. and, and uh, Because he himself, Paul Schonenberg, was from the Air Force. right. Yeah, and I I know that he's still close with uh, with U.S. friends in in base etc. So he came with this idea, and, and immediately I like it because uh, and especially it got more um, more uh, let's say uh, deeper uh, meaning after the, the Russian invasion to to Ukraine when we could actually um, all the, uh, the 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 Luxembourg uh, the, the NATO member states ambassadors resident in Luxembourg can prove some unity and, and also support for the Spangdalem. But uh, for me also, it's it was a, a, a pleasant uh, part of it this, as I'm a pilot. And, and my role was not only to recruit uh, my uh, fellow uh, NATO member states, uh, uh, the ambassadors, but also to pilot there and, and back uh, with passengers on board. So it was a sort of demanding, uh, you know, the, the accumulations of roles as a Czech ambassador, as a pilot, as a co-organizer of this. But uh, the only thing uh, I could uh, regret, and the, the flight was so short. 
I might, it was for the first time, not only in Spangdal, I mean, we understood it was globally, not for the first time when the US uh, uh, airbase uh, uh, actually invited and, and uh, agreed with coming like nine or 10 small aircraft uh, for the visit. And I think they use it too. They, they had fun. Well, we should say that Spangdalem is not too far from here in Germany, and it is a US airbase. Right. So perhaps you can give a tiny little bit of the history, not not a Putin two hour long history, but a, a short <laughs> short history about Spangdal. Yes. I'm not that uh, um, the deeper. Uh, well, I don't know this uh, the, the history, but it much. But what surprised me because once we landed there and had the possibility to see, and and they presented us, uh, and and the wing commander showed us how he runs the shop. Uh, that was quite really impressed. Uh, um, how many. Uh, activities they are, and um, and especially their role, the military role during the, the you know the first wave, uh, the aggression was uh, absolutely essential. So so that was one part, and it was also portion back idea that we, all of us will bring a, a flag of our of um, our national flags and, and and letters to support and and I think it was. Uh, it was uh, the timing was really good, so as just we could also hear from Luxembourg to support uh, the the U.S. base. Now, during your time, a lot has happened. In 2022, we celebrated a hundred years of diplomatic relations between Luxembourg and uh, the Czech Republic. So um, that means that. Apart from celebrations, there was an inauguration of. Uh, I hope I don't mispronounce this. Václav Havel Street. Yeah, Václav. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. completely yeah. incorrect. <laughs> so, who is Václav? Václav Havel. Yeah. Well, uh, um, he was a, the first president after the Velvet Revolution yes. in of Czechoslovakia, and it was the first president of Czech, uh, Czechia, Czech Republic. But uh, uh, mostly, he was someone who was um, uh, in the first half of his life. He was a uh, uh, he was a writer. Uh, uh, he was playwright. He was uh, someone who was really close to the culture. And um, how did he flip into political life? The interesting thing was that well, he was uh, he quite uh, early understood you know the the edge between wrong and and good and how. The communist regime was suppressing uh, artists and everyone, actually the opposition, etc. And and so he developed being a really uh, a, a dissident, and and he was someone who also uh, initiated, uh, among others, the Charta seventy seven. And the interesting things that uh, the, the well, I wouldn't say radicalization, but some things what was uh, moving him uh, more quickly, and it was also the the reason for for Charta seventy seven was when the regime started to suppress uh, a punk or, or or rock group who was you know obviously very free or long hair there was some things which was for for communist police uh, for something unbelievable that someone as, as, a, as a boy can have a long hair and, and so and and they were also the, the lyrics of their songs were not that poetic as would the communist regime expect so mm. and so those guys were actually in in a court uh as a as a um i don't remember i wouldn't even uh, be able to translate it to english what was the uh the accusation but it was uh, dismantling socialism let's call it this way and uh, even though uh Václav havel wasn't someone who was really at that point uh, keen of that kind of music he, he liked the jazz etc he didn't like the the uh, the injustice being happening to those guys. So that was one of the reasons the Harta 77 started. And more and more, he was suppressed as well. And uh, and he was imprisoned many times. And uh, one, well, the curious thing was that um, the same year he was, uh, he became a president, that same year he was in a prison in early stage of the year, in, I think in May. And uh, so someone who made a quite short trip from the prison to the castle of the of, and president office, uh, that was something which was really fitting to the, the play, he, because he was the author of Absurd Plays, and he became kind of a, an, an, an actor in his own Absurd Play. It's an extraordinary story of his lifetime, actually. And um, it also shows, I mean... <clears throat> 
the uh, the breakdown of the communist regime uh, in the Czech Republic is known as one of the more peaceful ones compared to the other parts. Yeah, of the world. we don't like the the, the noise mm. of the battle. No, but it also shows the power of uh, a cultural uh, force, and that uh, cultural voices can have uh, an influence on political life. Oh, that's true, and 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 so also the um, the, the the first. Um, representation just after the Velvet Revolution, there was mostly people who were, uh, um, before, they were professors, they were uh, they were artists, they were writers. But then, after the so-called normalization, after 1968, when the, the Soviet troops, or the Warsaw Pact troops, invade Czechoslovakia, they became uh, clean window cleaners, or they dig, uh, um, they were working like, um, uh, you know, um, cleaning the, the streets, etc. So intellectuals from universities, they had to, if they wanted to work, they, and if they wanted to earn some money, they had to work on, on manually. And, and for example, the first uh, foreign minister after the Velvet Revolution, who was still working in a, in a heat, well, uh, how would you say, the, in a furnace, uh, he was uh, responsible for heating some complex of buildings. And when he came to the uh, the Chernin Palace for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he had to find someone substitute for the shift on the, on the, the, for, the for the furnace. So <laughs> so that was that shows uh, how how vibrant and dynamic the changes in, in the early uh, post communist uh, Czechoslovakia were and uh, and so far when I'm meeting uh, older diplomats, they are still remembering the first generations of diplomats who were not really professional diplomats, but they really oxygenized the, the diplomatic community with uh, with the, the life story they had, with the with the experience they had from the prison, for example, and and also for quite sharp sense of uh, what's wrong and what's right. Mm -hmm. Do you have any memories growing up uh, during that time? You must have been young, I'm sure. Yeah, well, yeah, actually my earliest memories I can remember is from 1968. I was three years old and and uh, the, the the Russian troops came to my hometown and, and I remember that my, my dad grabbed my hand and we had to run and I saw my dad, he was a god for, for three years, you know, old boy and he was uh, he was afraid he was frightened and, and that was something it's engraved to the memory because so far, you know, he was a relaxed father who was, uh, you know something really safe place to be with him and I saw him being really scared so that was something that's my earliest memory I remember from from uh, from uh, childhood and uh, then he was a teacher and he lost his job because he and some fellows he was climbing to, to Russian tanks and trying to convince the Russian Russians that there is no contra revolutions as they call that and um, and trying to to and, and then uh, of course uh, during so-called uh, uh, Czechs in in seventies, uh, uh, he he stayed with the with the claim that uh, of course he doesn't agree. What was a crucial question? Do you agree with the uh, as they call it international help coming from Varsovia Pact or not? And and if the the answer was negative, you lost the job, and you had to really downgrade everything. Your kids most probably lose the possibility to go to to universities etc so this was something i i experienced and also because of that i i couldn't actually choose my my career path uh, straightforward and and the only secondary school i was able in my hometown go it was um, uh, the 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 construction so i was i had a baccalaureate from from concrete from um, things I uh, yeah I had to go through and and then I was able to go to technical university and and I started to uh, study the geography and ge geodesy and, and cartography and uh, and slowly shifting to the uh, foreign trade and to the diplomacy. Well, so. you might be the only diplomat in the world who is a specialist also in concrete. <laughs> and I'm sure there's not so many who are pilots. I, perhaps you you know, may, maybe there's a diplomatic air club that I don't know about. <laughs> um, but of course, uh, alongside that, of course, you're, you're a musician. You sing and you play true. the accordion. That's true. 
I have to admit that. Well, that's a good thing. That's nothing uh, negative. But of course, we also have at the end of the month uh, a very important visit. We've got your president, Mr. Peter Pavel and his wife. Um, they're going to visit Luxembourg. Yes, and that will be the first state visit for my president and the first state visit for new Luxembourgish government at the same time. So it's quite exciting for both sides to to do things right. And and I have to say that uh, I'm really, really confident in the hands of Luxembourgish partners from Protocol, from, from Palek Randukal, as uh, they are really the professional and kind approach uh, uh, gives me um, you know the good feeling that everything will be all right and i want you to explain to us the difference for the czech republic between a president and prime minister in your country well yeah the prime minister is, is heading the government and and uh, the uh, the president as a head of the country has uh, more representative uh, role but at the same time he can veto uh, laws and he can uh, actually name the the professors he can name the uh, the members of the Czech National Bank and so it's there are it's not a presidential system it's it's really like a, a parliamentarian system but at the same time uh, it is wise for the government to uh, get uh, on board the president before they are going with some loss mm-hmm. otherwise that would uh, not easy uh, simplify the procedure if they don't go you know and explain what they aim with then and such a law And the president is also commander in chief of the armed forces. That's correct. And that's important because when he visits here, he will also come with a delegation, a business delegation, with a focus on ICT, cybersecurity, space and defense. That's that's exact. And well, also his uh, his um, his parkour is actually he as a, a former soldier. He was a, the, the the NATO military chief uh, for some time, and uh, which. Well, at the same time, for the geopolitical situations we are facing now, it's a good uh, qualification, I would say, to be a head of a state. I would like to, yes, I agree. I would like to ask a bit more about that because I think uh, it might be my ignorance, but we don't really hear the story of the Czech people when it comes to what's happening with Ukraine and Russia and your own history, of course, as uh, the communist history that you have. We hear a lot about Poland, for instance, uh, you know, it's, we've heard a lot on this show about Poland, um, but not the Czech story. How many Ukrainians have moved to the Czech Republic? Well, um, that was uh, over 420,000. So, and, and they, within weeks, they got the, the, the uh, temporary residence, so as they have the insurance and other things, and, and they actually got also the job. So, over 120,000 got on the on the on the. On the so, 420,000. What's the population of the Czech Republic? It's 10 million. So, it's a four percent of population is now the the Ukrainian uh, refugees. That's and, a lot. And what was really well. It was that uh, a majority of uh, households, you know, that was the, the first wave of the accommodation was coming from privates to offering them their house and, and, and schools, etc. So, so just to um, to accommodate the first wave and, and find out once the the system was established, that was from from the normal people who actually really um, showed their their solidarity. And I want to also just ask you what the feeling is in the Czech Republic right now with, uh, as you say, the geopolitical situation we have. Well, uh, it is more and more complicated, of course. And, and it's not just because of uh, so-called Ukrainian uh, fatigue, uh, because anyone who could be fatigued are the Ukrainians on, on, on the front, on the battlefield. But uh, uh, what is not secret that... Uh, Those countries, the the ex-Soviet orbits, are a thousand times more exposed and more vulnerable to disinformations coming from uh, from all the troll factories, which is actually something the, uh, the 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 Russia understood is much more efficient than to uh, to uh, to hardware. Is this why cybersecurity is such an important aspect? Absolutely, absolutely, and also. I think it's it's not enough to stress that uh, we have to really face the disinformations because the only reason, the only purpose of that is to divide the society, divide families, divide society, divide European Union, divide uh, the alliances, etc. And uh, any time there's any topic, vaccination, 
um, whatever you can find, mig migrations, anything which has the potential to divide society, it's immediately attacked with all the chain mails, with all the um, things you can find. And you discussed quite a lot about uh, the vulnerability of, of young people who can switch from, and all the algorithms coming from the social media are, are now feeding them to the uh, to the the first response they had so they can move them more and more not to balanced view and understand for example in in middle east you know what is coming first what is coming second understand the balance of the of the forces but they are switch, uh, shifting them more and more to one side and quite easily her sibling could be shifting to the other side. So this is the, 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 the beginning of dividing the, the society. But how do you begin to control that? Well, the first thing is to address that, that this and this is disinformation, really. That's, that's, that's obvious, you know. It's, I think it's a Sisyphus work. It's it's never-ending story, but uh, that's also the reason we cannot stop. We cannot really give up that. Mm -hmm. Well, now I want to move to the other part, uh, which is so important, and it's where I've met you at a few uh, conferences, space and defence sector. More and more important, it seems that the war on the ground is moving to space. We've got some, well, reflecting on the ground, the same players in space. Um, and I know that uh, there's a keen interest in conversation around GovSatcom. Um, tell us about your interest in space and why it matters. You're also a pilot, it's a little bit lower, <laughs> but um, but things are moving up there in all sorts of ways. Yeah, well, the the, the, the piloting and, and airspace industry and, and the, the huge and, and rich history in, in Czechoslovakia, in Czech Republic, is really uh, edging to the space. And, and all the companies, or most of the companies who were originally involved in, in productions of uh, airframes etc are of course uh, uh, more and more shifting also for their for their works to the space and 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 as uh, the Luxembourg has a, a huge potential in that and we are good in that this is a just natural match and um, it was also reason why we fight for, for having the the Galileo administration seats in Prague which is which happened um, like a, a decade ago and also to uh, sh to to um, get this as a as a huge administration, so the now the the European kind of and of of EU activities in space are much uh, much related to to Czechia, and uh, of course that helps companies. The, the technologies are going up, and and they are seeking the natural partnerships, and and Luxembourg is natural a natural partner for that. And that's not the first encounter we had a like three or four already exchange the technology days in space and so the companies knows each other but, but beyond beyond the 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 company relationships just um the geopolitical conversation around the importance of space and the fact that what we learn in history books about war has changed so much you've mentioned the cyber security being so integral to how you hold the narrative of of what one believes to be truth within the czech republic within europe for instance but again you know, we know that uh, satellites have been shot down by their own country, just as a test. So we know that a country can shoot down its own satellite if it wants, and therefore it would be illegal, but it could do that to other satellites. And if that happened, we would have a global recession. That's, yeah, the risk is there. And uh, obviously, as all the... Um, mm, the uh, the conflicts we are seeing on a ground level that's just pretty much obvious will go up. Well, I don't want to leave it on a negative note. Uh, give us something that we can look forward to in the next month and and give us something to go into the weekend that is Czech, essentially of, of the Czech people. Well, um, well, for us, the visit coming from the president, this is something which is actually um, a big celebration. Uh, as, as I'm heading to the end of my of my uh, posting here, uh, being able to be part of the team preparing that, this is something to bring really Czech things here to Luxembourg. But it's not it's not like a, a something new. There is a the medieval history we have the the generation three generations of Luxembourgs and on the Bohemian throne, and and frankly. 
a few politicians really um, resist the temptations to use this uh, as a cliche when they meet each other. I mean, from this bilateral relation. Uh, but I think that um, what I understood, and I decided actually to come being a bilateral ambassador after my experience 2015 when I was a head of delegation for Compete when the Luxembourg was presiding the, the EU and I, I flew here in on ultralight of Czech production and I saw the um, uh, beyond the the, the the experience I had with Luxembourgish uh, partners the beauty of the country and I saw how similar it is to Czechia how it's it's, it's a smaller but uh, the feeling here I have is uh, something I can understand why the John the Blind uh, got uh, you know for, as a Czech king and when even though he has not uh, uh, really calm relations with his Czech wife uh, his uh, uh, his feelings for the for the Bohemia was there. So something really Czech is telling that uh, uh, you all you you Luxembourgish here are partly Czechs, and um, I as a as a blood donor I'm I'm continuing with the tradition <laughs> uh, in less amusing way to mixing the the Czech and and Luxembourgish uh, blood and and uh, so this is something I'm bringing Czech to. That's very funny. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ambassador. And we're, we're delighted that you're here. And of course, we'll uh, watch that uh, President visit uh, with keen interest at the end of the month. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Lisa Burke Show. And now I have Catherine Elson, who is an actress, performer, and Sandy Artuzo, who is a director. We're going to talk about... Uh, 4.48 Psychosis, which is a very specific script. Um, Sandy, you particularly have um, a real love of this playwright. Um, it's a playwright called Sarah Kane. Um, she died very young. And perhaps with the title of this play, Psychosis, you could tell us a bit more about her. Uh, yes, well, um, I actually, yeah, I started to, to read her work very early in my youth, uh, so it's uh, I calculated when I was on the drive here, and it's something about twenty years ago. It doesn't make us younger, but yeah. You look very <laughs> <good>. <laughs> Thank Great you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. So yeah, I I, did, I discovered her when uh, that was just pa uh, shortly after her passing. Actually, she committed suicide. That, that should uh, be said quite early, just to know what we're talking about. And uh, yeah, this display. Uh, with the title Friday Eight Psychosis does talk about these subjects too. But before that, she wrote uh, four other plays, and she she broke literally on the stages of uh, London with uh, her first play called Blast It, um, that caused some vivid reactions for theatre critics um, that uh, felt the end of the world nearing with uh, authors like her writing this. Uh, uh, I have to look at the quote. I, th I think it was Michael Billington who called it um, a uh, filthy uh, something and uh, later retracted his words some 10 years later when he noticed what it was that she brought to the, to the English um, theatre landscape. Well, he also wrote uh, in his review of this play... Yeah. It's a seventy-five-minute suicide. Yeah, night. exactly. That's it. Wasn't really a fan of her to her in her lifetime. To the well, I mean, that yeah. could be taken many ways. I didn't read the whole uh, review, but yeah. it, I mean, it means that this play is very heavy. It is. It is. Um, I mean, it it uh, it can be seen as a as a, we did it as a monologue. So um, I'm giving the words very sh soon to Catherine. <laughs> I can talk about that experience. Uh, it is. Uh, you don't have these instructions. You don't have personas like uh, uh, names or something to guide you. So it's really one piece of text, but a very, very beautiful piece of text, very rhythmic, very dynamic and very poetic in a way. And, um, it's really the, the, uh, the culmination of a craft, uh, I have to say. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, to see it as a suicide note is for me a bit a shortcut just to cut really to the point that okay the, the author committed suicide after completing or shortly after completing that play but it's also her masterpiece in a sense that she worked on her style all through the other plays she wrote and perfected it to um to a point where you have these uh these sentences where you have in one sentence so much power and you say wow well i, I mean catherine you are performing this 
as Sandy said, it's a 75 minute monologue. How do you remember this? <laughs> Good question. I hope, <laughs> I hope I do because I have to perform it again in two weeks. Um, yeah, it was the biggest uh, text challenge I've ever had. So I can't far. even imagine <laughs> 75 yeah. minutes of text. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a lot. Mm. But um, I mean, I knew that from the beginning. So I, I, I knew this is this text challenge, but I was so, yeah, I was so happy that uh, when Sandy asked me to do it, um, because it's just, uh, yeah, as Sandy says, it's, it's a very special poetic text. I mean, it's, it's a piece of art and, you give and us being some... able to to interpret it is a big honor so yeah i know that sandy has a phd actually in uh, sarah kane's work i i've read about you sandy <laughs> well, not quite in that line oh, but no. i have a phd in literature that's yeah that's in, true. in literature and <laughs> apparently master, you wrote your master's yes. thesis sorry not your phd oh, master's no, thesis okay. on sarah kane's second play Phaedra's love yeah exactly um but Catherine, coming back to the text, I'd love you to give us a little bit of an example of a line, just something, because apparently it's very rhythmic, it's very poetic, mm -hmm. and it's got a beat to it. Oh, wow. Now out of the cup, yeah, it's a bit hard. I'm, I'm looking at my, uh, my sheet, if I find a nice one to help uh, Catherine you, you find out. a nice one. And meanwhile, uh, Catherine, I'll just stay with you, because I want mm -hmm. you to also tell us about what it means for you to mentally take on this text. I mean, I haven't seen the play. I haven't read it. Um, I will try to go in and watch you perform it. Um, but it's clearly very heavy, mentally very heavy. Yeah. Do you carry that inside you when you're performing it? Yeah, I guess so, somehow. I mean, um, I think it's the project where I most felt I'm actually not playing a role because the text is written in such an honest, uh, pure, direct way. And we were really uh, looking at the... We weren't thinking of, oh, on that plot you move like that and here we have a little dance and there we have some light. No, I mean, the text itself is is everything. So you have to get yourself fully in. I mean, you can't hold yourself back. And then, of course, there are moments that... They were heavy, but I think in the rehearsal, you know, we always, we know each other pretty well. So they took care of my mental health. Like, do you need breaks? What, what do you need? And I went for a lot of walks, but I also knew it, it's going to be intense. And I kind of took it as a ritual because at the same time, I wasn't going with the idea that this is a suicide note. I mean, it's written so intelligently and a lot of thoughts that she has about society. I mean, I had them as well. And I think most of us maybe have them at some point in their lives. So such I didn't, um, such as, I mean, she was talking about the, the medical system, about the, the psychiatric doctors that she felt that they're just, you know, they're all asking the same questions and they're kind of already putting words into her mouth because they have to fill out some forms. And that sometimes there might be, you know, a kind of human, a real interest, but then you don't know because it's people's jobs. I mean, it's just like she's looking for this kind of human connection about, with people and often in life. I mean, we have it, but then it's also very, it can be very flaky or so it can be very fragile if you're open kind of person. So, so she did try to get help, mental Help. Um, the author, yes, yes, by yes. means. Uh, she was in, uh, as far as I know from her biography, she was uh, in treatment and um, and also uh, doing well most of the time. And uh, but apparently, I think the writing uh, took also some kind of toll on her health. Mm -hmm. In that sense, as we all know, maybe from also other, but not just the artists, but everybody that uh, if you invest you so much into something that it can also take something from you. And and I think it was also that for her to 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 be. Uh, at uh, the artist that she was also because she was so close to what was happening around her and that that inf uh, affected mm. her she was very sensitive yes yeah. yes i think yeah. i think for me just to for what we were talking before as an artist you're always looking for the boundaries i mean if you're looking f i think she's looking for truth and there is no objective truth about being alive or not being alive but she did everything to write her truth down as meticulous as possible. And that's what I'm trying, you know, you always try to do that as an, as an artist and as an audience, you are touched when somebody's authentic on stage. You you immediately, as an audience, you feel when somebody's mm -hmm. fake or not. So I think this, for me, the, the topic is, it's not, it's not, you know, her death, but it's mm -hmm. the kind of the existential approach 
that you have as an artist, unless you're just, you know, you just want to entertain and, and, and earn some money. But if you, you want to really touch at something deep, then uh, for me, yeah, Sarah Kane, it's half her body of work, her approach is very inspiring for me, although I do completely different things when I don't do this piece. So. Mm, mm. But uh, also you mentioned her, her, she has a precise use of language. Yeah. Um, you that. have an example. <laughs> so it's, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's not the most favorite but I can't find that one but is um, the one uh, it is myself I have never met whose face is pasted on the underside of my mind it's quite more to the end of the mm -hmm. play it's and the second uh, last yeah it's it is yes yes and so it's um, um, you have these kind of sentences and it is really you meant you want to come back to them and reread them and rethink of what what is meant with that and and you have also more more rhythmic passages mm. where she also takes the piss of uh, situation and and you have uh, some things that come back all the time and that was um, also one of my favorite and that's remember the light and believe the light and that was also something that we wanted to focus on on the light because you've so. worked mm. with um, an artistic exactly. director for light and lightner yeah. Uh, exactly. So we are, for the technical lights, uh, we worked with uh, Steve Demuth, um, who tried to <laughs> express what we were thinking uh, on stage. But we also worked with Anne Lindner, uh, who is an artist um, and uh, who very early was also on, uh, on board with the project when we also were doing residencies to approach the subject. Um, and very much there also we wanted to focus on on this contrast between darkness and light and and um light really in the in the sense of uh, something being not dark so um we have also this uh, scene uh, scenography that is very minimal and very uh yeah clear uh, so yeah. pure yeah. pure in a sense yeah so that was also something that was very important and what Anne um uh transposed and in, in her in her precise scenography yeah. and how and easy sorry no, sorry I just wanted to say um, she really defies with her poetry maybe a more let's say binary approach to mental health you know like oh this mm. person is healthy this person isn't healthy let's label them with all the thing you know and I'm, sometimes I was thinking you know before there was institutionalized psychology and psych psychiatry you know our psyche is a vast land, you know, and now people are like labeled and they might actually also feel blocked to evolve because they're labeled, they're given certain medicine. I'm not denying that there are also people, you know, if they really need help and, and it's good it's there. But um, with with the text, I sometimes felt like when she says light, it doesn't mean, oh, that's when I'm happy. <laughs> it's again this looking for truth and it's it's a, it's about looking at her own psyche and reflecting on it and on her relationships and it's like going through the dark pits mm. of her mind with a torch you know and, <laughs> yeah. and and it's ugly sometimes but but yeah you need to be courageous to face it and uh, mm. and then through that beauty beauty appears and and yeah and there were different styles we were we were getting inspired by different poets also like uh, Kay Tempest for example who's you know very rhythmical with her texts and then we were also thinking, oh, at some moments it's like you're just talking in the pub to somebody and you're ranting, you, you know, you had too many beers and you're just taking it all out. And sometimes there are moments where you talk to a doctor. And mm. the thing is, I'm always on my own. So I have to imagine all these people and all these contexts and, and having different styles. You have lots of invisible friends on uh, stage. I have you. to have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, when you were talking yeah. about her, her use of light, it sounds quite biblical in nature. Mm -hmm. in fact. That's true. How easy is it to be an artist in Luxembourg? It's biblical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I will joking, have to so. pass the word there at, uh, at uh, Catherine because I'm a bit of a hybrid in that all scene because I was I work more either on the production side or actually in another job in the well, industrial culture uh, side. Well, I mean, I mean, but, I'm asking um, the question because in effect, is it possible to just do art in Luxembourg? Yeah, yeah. For I mean, uh, performative arts. Yeah, yeah. If you're on stage, it's possible. I mean, you you have to be well organized and be proactive. But if you have ideas and you're motivated mm. and you also like to work in different contexts, mm. I mean, if you just want always to do exactly everything mm. as you want it, it's probably not possible. But that's that's life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, and then I think we're 
pretty lucky in Luxembourg compared to other countries, any other country, actually. Mm. Well, finally then, final note to you, Sandy, where can we see this? Oh, yeah, that's quite the point of it. Um, we will have um, one, one, only one, unfortunately, so far at coming up at the moment, at the moment, uh, coming up on February 21st in Dudelange op der Schmelz um, in the evening at eight o'clock. And there will be also a um, a school uh, a performance for schools in the morning of that same day. There are still uh, slots left also for the school edition. I don't know if there may be English teachers listening in and uh, who want Book to your be... Tickets. Yes, because bring a class or something. Yeah. We have a, a theatre pedagogue working with us who has also prepared a very good um, package to, to talk with the class afterwards. But also, if you're not a teacher, <laughs> come to the evening uh, to Dillange and we're working on, on other uh, dates to, to go on, on tour, so to say. And uh, yeah, because the premiere was already in, in, in the Kufa in October, but now we have this date still in Dudelange. And you're hoping to come up back again in the yes. autumn? Mm -hmm. or being yes, autumn or winter, there will be dates, but we can't confirm them yet. <laughs> well, to all of my guests, thank you so much. To listeners, viewers, we wish you a beautiful weekend, week ahead, wherever you are. If you're going on holiday, have a great time. Do return. Do write, do tell us all about it, make us jealous, send us some nice photos. And with that, uh, have a fabulous week ahead.